Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliet Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. We know that Adam Smith was moral philosopher and is considered the father of modern economics. But how do those really intersect? Um, are markets really moral or immoral? Can they be? There are a lot of economists that argue that, no, markets are amoral, actually. There are philosophers that say that as well. But Smith says, yes, in fact, they are and they are moral. Um, today, on January 19th, 2023, Happy New Year, I'm excited to invite Professor Ryan Hanley to the podcast to talk about this topic. He's a professor of political science at Boston College, and he's also the author of several books, including Our Great Purpose, Adam Smith on Living a Better Life, and Adam Smith and the Character of Virtue. He also edited the Penguin Classics edition of The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Julia. It's a real pleasure to be here. Before we jump into Smith, I got to ask, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? I love this question. Uh, and I'm going to preface my answer to it by saying, um, I never like to make blanket generalizations. And when you speak of people of your generation or your age, uh, that obviously takes in such a diverse group that there are some people that know very well what I'm about to say. Uh, but there is also a certain tendency, I think, um, to overlook this particular fact. And so if there's one thing that I, as a teacher of people, your uh, generation, your age, try to impress uh, on, on my students is that, um, you know, we live in a world that has a strong tendency to moralize uh, politics, to moralize history, and to oftentimes see historical events and historical figures, and indeed historical thinkers in terms of black and white, all good or all bad, on the right side or the wrong side of history. And um, I don't think that that's a bad place to begin one's inquiry into the study of history, but I really do try to encourage my students to see that the past is a place of great complexity, and the thinkers and figures that we study were themselves human beings just like we are human beings, full of contradictions, full of noble aspirations, oftentimes human beings with feet of clay and all too human failings. And so, um, as I take my students into the past, one of the things that I try to encourage is the opportunity studying the past gives us to think beyond black and white. Uh, and I hope that um, uh, for the sake of our public discourse, as we talk about history, um, we might resist some of those temptations to see uh, figures from the past in terms of those thumbs up or thumbs down predilections that, um, again, many in our public culture hold and I think is um, oftentimes uh, very common um, among students just as they're leaving high school today. That's such a good th reminder for me and just humans generally, because I don't know, with philosophy and just thinking about what should happen, it's very easy to be black and white and principled and this and that. But then 
Obviously, history is looking back at actions of real people putting things and principles into practice, and that's what life is for every individual. So to hold exactly that same expectation that we know from our own lives can't be true because everyone messes up, everyone this, everyone that, it's to hold everyone to an entirely black and white standard 100% of the time is kind of to, uh, it's kind of to take the human out of it almost. I'm glad that you remember when I said that not all people of your generation fall into this category of forgetting this. I'm glad to see that you are one of those people that doesn't forget about this. Uh, And it really is a somewhat more nuanced perspective on history. But I think it's one that um, brings a little bit of humility also in the way we think of ourselves. I mean, we, too, will be judged by history uh, in in the years to come. Um, And so I, I think that that I think it's a profoundly Smithian thing, something I've taken from Smith, to think in terms of um, the humility of our own selves and making sure that we ourselves are not too self-righteous, which is a temptation. So on to Smith, this this great teacher and imparter of wisdom. Um, what drew you to him and to write your works that have to do with his works and him? Yeah, I'll, I'll say a little bit about that. Let me preface this by saying in one of his letters, Adam Smith says, I'm not going to talk any more about myself because I refuse to engage in long discussions of that worst of all topics, oneself. And so Smith knew that people uh, tired of bio pretty quickly. So I'm going to give a very, very short, brief response to that biographical question. Um, the short answer was... Uh, uh, two things I think happened. One is as an undergraduate, I, I always loved the 18th century and I wanted to understand America better. And I, as a history student, I focused especially on the American founding. And one thing I tried to do was to read all of the texts that, um, as many as I could as an undergraduate, that the, that the founders I was studying were themselves reading. And that led me to the study of especially the Scottish Enlightenment and figures like Hume and Smith. And over time, I found that, um, the questions that Hume and Smith were tra- were grappling with were ultimately more, uh, they spoke to me more than some of the questions that, say, Madison and Hamilton were dealing with. And so I sort of worked back from the American founding to the Scottish Enlightenment. That was one part of it. The other part of it was I had a, a great, as, uh, <laughs> I think after my junior year, I had a, a, a fun internship at a think tank in Washington. And um, one of my tasks there is I had to do a little bit of library cataloging. And they sent me up to the library and uh, the, the particular think tank had a whole bunch of Adam Smith's works. And I, 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 I was reading the theory of moral sentiments and I was then called back down to my duties doing policy assistance. And I discovered really quickly that I really preferred reading the theory of moral sentiments in the library as opposed to uh, dealing with some of the things that were happening on Capitol Hill in the policy world. So, um, I, you know, we all have to have that know thyself moment when you're on a certain path and you say, you know, this really isn't for me and this really is for me. And um, the reading of Adam Smith in the context of Washington, D.C. at a very exciting time. This was right when um, the Republican takeover of Congress with uh, Newt Gingrich as the new speaker. Um, these were very heady times in Washington. And I realized that the political fray just didn't draw me nearly as much as the uh, Uh, as the opportunity to study philosophy. So that was my know thyself moment that led me to Smith. 
I'm in a similar know thyself moment myself, and we have yet to see where that will go. Um, <laughs> okay, well, good. I didn't know where it was going either at the time. Well, uh, but it works out. How about that? I can tell you that it works out. That is really confident and inspiring. I'm excited and nervous to see where it goes. So thank you for sharing. Um, good, of course. So I guess basic groundwork question, but this will kind of inform the rest of the discussion. What is Smith's goal in the theory of moral sentiments or TMS? Okay. Um, yeah, good for you for using the, uh, the, the, the shorthand scholarly acronym there. Um, what is Smith's goal in TMS? Well, here we go, straight to one of the most hotly debated questions among Smith scholars. Um, you know, there's two prevailing views. One is that Smith was engaged in a strictly descriptive enterprise. That is, as a good social scientist, as a good empirical observer, he was trying to explain how it is that human beings function in the social and moral worlds and how exactly societies function on the collective level. Um, that's one view of Smith as a, a, a purely descriptive, empirical student of society. There's another scholarly view that emphasizes that Smith's aims weren't so much descriptive as they were normative. That is, he wasn't so much trying to describe exactly how human beings worked, but in fact, um, what's good for human beings, what they should do, what they ought to do. And so, you know, these, these different poles of the descriptive and the normative are ones that social scientists throughout the 20th century and beyond have, uh, have grappled with and talking about the validity of their enterprise. Um, what I find so fascinating about Smith and what I think he was trying to do was to synthesize the, um, the normative and the and the descriptive. And that is to give an account of things such as human happiness, human flourishing, the nature of the good life and virtue. But doing that very much from the perspective and the recognition that um, the proper point of departure for those questions is the empirical study of real human beings and a deep appreciation of both the promise and the limits of society as it is constituted. So I see Smith as a, a really a synthetic thinker, or to use one of his favorite terms, an eclectic thinker, a thinker who synthesizes different methodological perspectives. Um, and that gives us a new window on how to philosophize, how to do social science, one that goes beyond some of the options, uh, those reductive two options, especially that we have often on the table in our debates today. So I really like Smith because I think what he's up to there is something that's very unique, not just for the 18th century, but indeed um, opens up new horizons for different kinds of work for those of us that work in departments of social science in the 21st century. Huh. So I guess that's not as basic, basic of a question as I initially thought. <laughs> um, and good thing, too, because it gives a lot of food for thought about what what it should look like. You're right. Um, and from what I've noticed, and I mean, I haven't been on the academic Adam Smith scholarly scene for that long, but it seems as though many scholars are rediscovering the theory of moral sentiments in the last few decades, years. Have you noticed that? And if you have, why do you think that is? 
Oh, yeah, it's certainly happening. I mean, in fact, we have statistical evidence that it's happening. Uh, there's a great piece, which now is probably about 15 years old by a wonderful scholar named Jonathan White, W-I-G-H-T, that tracked citations to Smith's works. Uh, and I can't remember off the top of my head where it was published. Um but uh, you'll easily find it on um, on Google Scholar. Um, but uh, one of the things Jonathan White did was to show that, um, first of all, in the wake of the bicentennial of the publication of The Wealth of Nations, so that's now 1976, there was a really marked rise of citations to Smith more generally. Um and then in the years that followed, what was interesting was that the interest in uh, the theory of moral sentiments went up exponentially. And so White found that, um, you know, a text that was off the table for a very long time had been rediscovered. Um, so we know that that was really happening and continues to really happen. I mean, and then your wonderful question is, um, why is this? Why did this happen? And I think, you know, I, I open by saying history is complex. Well, I, I think that there are, I think it's multifactorial. I'm sure that there are a number of reasons why this is happening. One is, in many ways, um, it's a... Uh, I, I think something of a reaction against um, an older embrace of Smith. And so I'm going to be a little bit reductive here, but, you know, the first people really to embrace Smith in the academy in the mid 20th century were the economists often associated with the Chicago School of Economics. And, um, you know, their Smith, George Stiegler Smith, uh, Milton Friedman Smith was very particular Smith. Um, and I think uh, as a result of that, um, some scholars uh, we're eager to find in Smith um, another side, this other side. Oh, hey, look, he worked on all of these um, interesting questions about sympathy and benevolence. And, um, and and so I think that there was an interest, quite frankly, from the political left in finding Smith. And I don't want to go so far as reclaiming Smith, although there are scholars that have made it their mission to do that. Um, but I think working against some of the older, uh, older, um, what, what we're seen as sort of traditional ownership of Smith by, say, um, the American intellectual right. Um, uh, you know, for those who are interested in this, um, there's a very good new book by a young scholar named Glory Liu, L-I-U, who has written a book on, um, uh, I, I think it's called Adam Smith's America was the published title, um, that tracks the, uh, the, the, the fortunes of how Smith has been received. And so she really emphasizes this particular side. And I think it's one very important side. Um, I won't drone on too much more, but I think there are other sides beyond just reacting to the Chicago boys. Um, another has to do with the, um, the movements within the history of philosophy to broaden the canon of thinkers. Um, I think that there's also been a lot of interesting work, both in philosophy and neuropsychology, among other places, that has led to an increased interest in questions of sympathy that have led people back to this side of Smith. And so, again, um, I think there's a lot of different routes that have brought a lot of different people back to Smith, but those are at least, um, you know, three different ones that I think explain a little bit of the rise in uh, interest in TMS. And so let's turn to your book a bit and the content of Smith that everyone is so focused on. Um, so you remind us that Smith's case for economic liberalism is grounded in moral philosophy, which 
was what was often ignored earlier on and what's on the rise now. So let's talk about morality of markets. Um, But we have to start kind of with sympathy and the impartial spectator, things you mentioned earlier. And I've had other interviews where we've talked about those topics, but can you give us a quick recap of what sympathy is in the way that Adam Smith uses it? Oh, good. This is excellent that I should be doing this because um, next Tuesday, we have the second meeting of my graduate seminar on Adam Smith. And we're looking specifically at part one of the theory of moral sentiments, which I'm sure many of your readers will know is dedicated to laying his foundational account of sympathy. So uh, this could be my my dry run of the uh, lecture that I'll have to give at the beginning of next Tuesday's class. Um, The, uh, you know, sympathy, what is it? Um, Smith starts out by um, saying that it's something that's hardwired in human nature. And so the first line of the theory of moral sentiments that, um, again, I hope maybe some of your listeners might know, and I'm, I, I suspect you probably, Juliet, know, um, you know, when Smith opens the book, it's, quote, how selfish soever man may be, uh, may be believed, there are evidently some principles in his nature that lead him to be interested in the happiness of others and to consider their um, uh, well-being uh, uh, fundamental to him. Um, this idea that the point of departure in Smith is a vision of human nature, that we are not simply self-interested, but also in some deeply fundamental way, we're naturally hardwired to be concerned about the well-being and indeed the happiness of others. I mean, that's an anthropological claim about what we are by nature. And that's Smith's point of departure. He then, of course, has to go on to unpack it and explain what exactly sympathy is, what exactly this thing in us that leads us to care about the fortunes of others. And he makes clear that he starts actually by making this really interesting move. He tells us what it's not. It's not compassion. It's not pity in the way we think of these things today. It's rather our our intrinsic desire to put ourselves in the place of others and to experience some degree of what they're feeling as they experience different events in their world. And so one of the fundamental attributes of sympathy is that um, when we give sympathy to others, we do so by putting ourselves in their in their shoes and then uh, attempting to assess the legitimacy of their own emotional and psychological reactions to the to, to the events in their world. Um, what makes Smith's concept of sympathy so fascinating is that sympathy isn't just something we're hardwired to give to others. It's also something that we're hardwired to want to get from others. And I think that's the really exciting part of Smith's dynamic here, which is that not only are we sympathizing with the people in the world around us as we observe them, but we also want them to sympathize with us. So there's this, uh, uh, we want them to uh, feel that the things we're feeling are legitimate. The things that we're thinking are legitimate. So um, that creates this very interesting two-way street that Smith then goes on to use to explain all kinds of interesting phenomena in the moral and social world. But it's if I were to emphasize anything, it's that sympathy really is a two-way street. It's both something we're hardwired to give to other people, but it's also something that we're deeply hardwired to want to get from other people. So then who is the impartial spectator and how does he tie into this concept of sympathy? And then how does that tie into morality? 
Yeah, that's a great question because this is the other big hinge of the book. Um, you know, maybe to get into that, rather than going straight to the impartial spectator, we could start with just the concept of the spectator. Um, spectatorship is really important in Smith. And even to understand his concept of sympathy, he's always talking about observing others, seeing what they're feeling, and then making judgments on, about what they're feeling based on sympathy. Um, so too, he is, um, as agents, as people that want sympathy ourselves, we go through the world knowing that other people are looking at us and watching us and making judgments. And that really changes the way we act when we know we're being observed by other people. And Juliet, I'm sure you could tell us the experimental economists that have been working on this and have been um, showing the real, uh, how, how right Adam Smith is on this front. I mean, it changes our behavior. Um, often in salutary ways, sometimes, of course, in very dangerous ways. But the point being that um, for Smith, our world is one in which we are observing and others are observing us. Spectatorship. It's a world of spectators. Smith thinks it's important that we have recourse, though, to another kind of spectator, not just the real spectators in our world, but also an idealized spectator, the one that he famously calls, as you mentioned, the impartial spectator. And so what the impartial spectator is, now that is a big, big, big question. We would have to spend a lot of time here if we're going to do that right. Um, but maybe the easiest response I can give, or, the, or maybe the most useful response is, why is the impartial spectator necessary? Why aren't real spectators enough? And I think the answer to that lies in, I was alluding to the fact that sometimes following the signals of real spectators can be dangerous, right? I mean, um, I have recently moved to a fairly small town in New England, and tonight we're going to have um, a town meeting where we actually deliberate and vote on a pretty significant economic proposal before the town that involves a pretty significant tax hike, uh, an additional $8 million to build a middle school. Well, how does that relate to spectatorship? People are going to stand and make speeches uh, tonight in front of their neighbors. And if we were only concerned with what real spectators, that is the people that will be in the gym, our neighbors, um, what they think, we might be inclined to sort of get along, go along to get along, you know, say things just so that they'll be appealing to others, even if we know that maybe it's not the right position to take. What Smith wants to suggest is that even though we care what real spectators think, we're not simply imprisoned by the beliefs and judgments and norms of the real spectators that surround us. Sometimes, although it takes some courage to resist the people around us, to follow what we believe is true and correct and good, especially if we're surrounded by problematic spectators, think of, uh, well, I, I'll, actually, I'll, I'll keep with my example of my town. Again, my neighbors are wonderful. But if they really are all moving in a direction that seems very dangerous, Smith recognizes that we need to have recourse to something that will lead us, embolden us to be able to resist the judgments of real spectators and to pursue and stand up for what is good and what is right. And that's why the impartial spectator is such a necessary and important figure. It helps 
in a world in which we're largely following the cues of sympathy to put a break on sympathy in those instances in which following the cues of sympathy could lead towards recognizably morally pernicious conclusions. And I mean, it's funny because the way that this is talked about reminds me a ton of game theory, except when you talk about it Mm -hmm. in the context of strict economics, it seems cold and calculating and not very human, even though Uh it is very human. And that's kind of the beauty of Smith and all he talks about. Um, It's also really funny because in the I work in an experimental economics lab and Uh the experiments we've been running recently all have to do with trust, which is ingrained Mm -hmm. in the idea of sympathy. And in the papers, we quote Adam Smith left and right, like, is this really true? (laughs) And we build off of Vernon Smith's original experiments, except we create a longer game to see how it would play out in a version of this fake world that is the experiment that looks a little more like society. And it's funny because it's totally anonymous and still you see people giving back and treating their partners completely anonymously the way that the impartial spectator or a spectator, if it wasn't anonymous, would expect you to respond. So you kind of see the impartial spectator and the invisible hand and like all of this stuff. And it's just so crazy to watch. Um, yeah, if if listeners, you can run experiments to test out Smith's ideas, I think that you should. I, it's kind, it would be kind of difficult without a lab, but, you know, it, it really brings these ideas to life. I mean, you can kind of see them in your everyday life anyways. Um, but And I have to say that I'm glad that you mentioned Vernon Smith mm-hmm. because um, I think I learned more about myself in uh, Vernon Smith's lab as one of his experimental subjects at one point in time than in any other experience I've ever had. That might be slight hyperbole, but um, the uh, he was doing experiments um, uh, related. They were essentially... Um, dictator games. Uh, and um, one of the, as you'll know, one of Smith's most powerful passions that he describes is resentment. And the feeling of resentment that you feel when you feel that you've been treated unfairly, even by an anonymous player in one of the lab experiments, it's so powerful and so real. Uh, and that was one of the places where I saw that, you, you know, it, it would be easy for me to criticize lab atmospheres as artificial, but I, I think when done well, these experiments do replicate something that's very familiar to us and it helps us uh, see with clarity certain elements of real life, li- real life lived as ordinary subjects living in the world. It helps to bring that out with some clarity because it reduces some of the other clutter. So I'm actually a real believer in experimental economics, even though uh, lamentably my math skills are so far behind. I really have to work hard to get through one of Vernon's papers. <laughs> well, you know, you can always, he wrote this book called Humanomics, which is a really it's it's in English. Like it's not yeah, necessarily well. in econ a, or math. I'm a fan. It's a very yes. it's very, very good at explaining these sorts of things. So listeners, Professor, I really recommend that. <laughs> I, I I'm a fan. I think there might even be a little blurb from me on the back of that particular book, if I remember correctly. I'll check it out when I get back to my apartment. <laughs> um, <laughs> so obviously, Smith economics had obviously comes back to this. Um, He builds this theory of virtue that he talks about, beginning with the very economic principle of rational self-interest. How does he use his understanding, kind of an economic understanding of humanity, to create this theory? And 
How does it set him apart from other moral philosophers if it does? Yeah, you know, I, one thing I guess maybe as a um, as a point of departure um, is that you know you said that he 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 takes as his uh, as his foundation the concept of self interest. I might make a, a, a slight caveat, and th- and this is where sort of I think history and and contemporary social science can benefit from mutual dialogue is that Smith himself uses a very interesting term there. Um, while he does occasionally speak of self-interest, he much more often speaks of a, a slightly different concept called self-love. And self-love, to my mind, is really fascinating because it's very much like the way we talk about self-interest today, but it also has a very rich heritage and a lot of rich implications, many of which lead into interesting moral realms. And so, you know, when we talk about self-interest today, we tend to think in a very formulaic way about utility maximization and the black box of utility, and it doesn't matter what sort of values we're discussing. Self-interest is just maximization of them. But self-love opens up some different ideas, first of all, sensitizing us to the fact that the object of what is love really matters, and in this case, loving oneself really matters, and also that um, self-love, perhaps unlike self-interest, self-love can go in a lot of different directions, right? Um, You were talking, Juliet, earlier, saying how, you know, economics sometimes can be cold and calculating and all this. The neoclassical models that emphasize self-interest can't have the potential sometimes, I guess, in some extreme ways to be like that. But, you know, self-love has a certain richness and it, I even go so far as to say a malleability. Self-love can take a lot of different forms. And so sometimes they can be really pernicious and sometimes they can be really healthy. And Smith himself really emphasizes this, that, um, you know, there are bad forms of self-love, vanity, pride. Sometimes these are really destructive ways of loving oneself. And he talks a lot about excessive self-esteem and excessive self-concern. Those are all problematic. But on the other hand, a positive self-love can lead us into all the different forms of virtue that Smith, um, as you know, discusses at great length in the later parts of the theory of moral sentiments. So there's something, I said malleable, but maybe the better word even is educable. Self-love is teachable and it can take a lot of different forms, some better and some worse. And so I think that's one slight difference from um, the way we talk about self-interest today, as if it's simply a static or sort of given uh, principle of human nature that can only take really one form. Um, There's this quote, actually, that this nuance you've added reminds me of that one of my friends quotes nonstop from Smith, which is, the remote effect of vice is virtue. So that kind of feeds into the teaching aspect. It can be learned. And I mean, it kind of goes in with the idea that putting philosophy and virtue into practice is a journey, just as being human is a journey. It all kind of goes together. Um, (laughs) But what is Smith's theory of virtue? What does the virtuous ideal man look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I'll sort of, you know, for starters, say one of the things that's so interesting about Smith is that I don't think there is one ideal figure. Um, 
That is, I think virtuous people can take a lot of different kinds of forms in Adam Smith. And I actually think it's one of the things that makes him such a useful thinker for us today. Um, you know, Adam Smith was, when it comes to virtue, what we today might call a pluralist. He actually sees the benefits of not just trying to fit everybody into one mold of perfection, but of uh, trying to um, encourage uh, different kinds of virtues, different kinds of ways of living. Um, and, and I think that's commensurate, not just with his sort of modern democratic impulses, but um, more importantly, with his economic commitment. I mean, I, I tell you, Juliet, nothing that you don't already know when I say that um, the division of labor for Smith is so important because it leads people to such different degrees of specialization. And those different types of specialists are then able to work with each other, to trade with each other, to benefit from their very differences in ways that everyone um, is able to collectively see. And so um, I think in the moral world, Smith is doing something very similar to what he describes with labor specialization and how that benefits society in the economic world. So um, that said, Smith does think that there are a couple of different lives that are uh, that are especially praiseworthy, to use a Smithian term, and that um, work in accord with several different virtues. And, you know, for the interest of time and being brief, I can mention just two. One is um, the figure that he calls the prudent man. Um, this is the first uh, chapter of the sixth part of Theory of Moral Sentiments, you know, roughly 10, 12 paragraphs. He lays out this really wonderful vision, and it is a vision. He really describes the prudent man and what this individual looks like in, as they live their life. Um, and that particular person is really a fascinating figure. Uh, it's somebody who's dedicated to wealth acquisition, to be sure, but he does it in a way that is... Um, decent and admirable, somebody who has uh, the virtue of industry, willing to work hard day in and day out, honesty, who wants to be the sort of trading partner that other people will, to mention another term that you've used, Juliet, that people will trust uh, to trade again with them. Um, uh, somebody who's frugal, somebody who's willing to save so that they can maximize returns on their investments in the long run. And so Smith really genuinely admires this person. Um, and he thinks that a good society will have prudent men around. And I should say, I, I don't see any reason to believe why he wouldn't believe that having prudent women around is every bit as important. Uh, he does use the, the the male pronoun there in accord with 18th century uh, conventions, but um, I think it's very easily transferable without doing any injustice to his thought. Um, but that said, the prudent man is only one of several virtuous men that he describes. The others, um, he describes um, the benevolent man, for example, and also the wise and virtuous man. And these are different from the prudent man. The, the, they too are prudent, but their emphasis is lies slightly elsewhere. And they have certain excellences that maybe the prudent man isn't as concerned to develop. And so I I think so. Smith's social vision is one in which not everyone is a wise and virtuous man. Not everyone is a benevolent man. Not everyone is a prudent man. But a good society encourages people, various people, to develop each of these virtues uh, and, and benefits from having um, the multitude of all of them. So then how on earth does Adam Smith 
connect morality and markets? Is it through the theory of moral sentiments? Do you have to take both works together? How does he uphold the virtue of a free society? Yeah, I mean, so this is a big question. And so many of your listeners will know that ever since the late 19th century in Germany, people have been debating Das Adam Smith Problem, the question of how Smith's work on uh, moral philosophy, the TMS, goes together with his work in economics, the WN. Um, you know, there's lots of ways to get into this, but here's one way that I would just, sort of building on the answer I gave to your previous question, you know, we think of Smith in terms of his two big books, right? TMS, Wealth of Nations, the first published originally in 1759 and the second published originally in 1776. And that's what Smith was known for. And today, if you go to Edinburgh and you visit uh, in the Canongate uh, uh, Kirkyard and see his see his grave, you'll see that he, ha- he has he put those on his grave. That, that was his lasting significance. Um, so he was a two-book man. But there's something slightly more complex about this, which is that um, Smith wanted to write other books. And in fact, he tells us that he wrote or at least drafted two other very long books uh, a few years before he died, one on a complete history of law and government and another a study of the history of the liberal arts and elegant sciences. Uh, Fascinating to think what those might have contained, but we'll never know except by speculation because Smith um, insisted that those be burned on his deathbed. And so uh, famously, 18 volumes of manuscript notebooks were burned at his uh, at his command. Um, that's the kind of thing that keeps a Smith scholar up at night, wondering what else might have gone to the flames. <laughs> but what he did end up publishing was what I, I have come to think almost is his third book. And his third book is one that he publishes really just months before he dies in uh, 1790. And that third book is a revision of his first book. It's uh, a new edition of The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and it's, in fact, the sixth edition. He had published a mother with minor revisions in his lifetime. But that sixth edition was where he added the big new section on virtue. And so to your question, How does commercial society or the economic world of WN go together with the theory of virtue in the theory of moral sentiments? I think one way to look at that is to look at those bits that he added to that 1796th edition in light of the things he described in The Wealth of Nations. And one thing that we find, I think, when you put those together is that Smith was, I mean, he stood in awe of the potentiality of commercial society to um, create what he called universal opulence. It, w- it was really something that he believed, a, a remarkable engine of progress that would benefit especially those uh, who were who are poorest and most at the margins. But there's a but. Even in the Wealth of Nations, Smith um, is very clear, especially in part five of The Wealth of Nations, that there are some negative externalities consequent to this progress. Um, among others, he talks about, quote, the corruption of all of our intellectual, social, and martial virtues as a specific result of highly divided specialized labor. In a series of very famous passages, right in his section on education, he talks about the quote-unquote mental mutilation that comes 
comes from the division of labor. So there's this really interesting paradox that a sensitive reader of The Wealth of Nations ends the book with, which is this division of labor that was the subject of the first book of The Wealth of Nations, this remarkable engine for economic growth and progress that benefits all, At the same time, it comes at some costs, and those costs are specifically moral, the sacrifice of certain very specific virtues. So Smith is, again, just a really balanced thinker, and he sees costs and benefits. The question becomes, what do you do with that? And I think Smith's answer to that was reflecting on the cost-benefit analysis that comes out of the wealth of nations that he published in 1776, I think one of the things that occupied him in those later years of his life was, how can we mitigate some of the most pernicious moral features of a highly developed commercial society, while also preserving the undeniable gains that it makes possible? And so I think one of the things he tried to do was to craft, in those later editions of the theory of moral sentiments, a sort of um, we could even say, you know, code of virtues or a moral, um, you know, to use a philosophical term, a virtue ethics appropriate for a commercial society. One that would encourage a certain kind of virtue that would resist some of the corruptions of a market society, but uh, at the same time, one that would um, uh, be commensurate with and indeed promote the um engine of universal opulence that um, he really wanted to preserve and he really thought was one of the great benefits of this new phenomenon that he was witnessing and describing and indeed defending in the wealth of nations. And um, so I guess putting all of that in context, was he responding to a claim about free markets either being moral, amoral, immoral when he wrote his works? Or was that just a theme that he concerned himself with kind of regardless or despite of what the thinkers of the time were thinking about? Yeah, I, I, I think one of the most exciting ways to read Smith is in his context and to look at who he's responding to. Um, and, um, It takes some work. Smith doesn't uh, lay out in his footnotes um, uh, all of the people that he has in mind when he's making certain arguments. But I think, Julia, you're absolutely right to have this inclination to think that Smith might be responding to some arguments in the air. Um, One of the most important arguments, undoubtedly, um, was that of arguably the 18th century's greatest critic of modern commercial society, uh, a thinker that... um, Smith knew very, very well, and in fact dedicated his first publication to. Um, That thinker is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And Rousseau, in uh, 1754, wrote, and then in 1755, early 1755, published one of the most famous books criticizing um, modern market society. This is the uh, Discourse on the Origins of Inequality. And in this book, Rousseau, which is a fascinating, complex, very interesting book. Um, in this short book, um, among other things, uh, Rousseau, um, laments, uh, in, in really profound detail, the ever widening, um, gap between the rich 
and the poor and uh, suggests that the modern commercial society and the modern politics upon which it's based is um, really unhealthy for both social order and for uh, individual well-being. Um, what I have always found fascinating since I began to appreciate the significance of this as a young student was that um, Adam Smith read this book as soon as it came out. He was really, really a Francophile. So he read a lot of things published in France and, and written in French. Um, but he read it very early on. And within months, he had even done some translating of it. And he even went so far as to recommend it to his Scottish readers. So the first thing that Smith publishes in his entire lifetime before the theory of moral sentiments of 1759 was this 1755 book review, essentially, that appeared in a periodical in Scotland, in which he recommended that his fellow Scots and members of the Scottish Enlightenment read and engage Rousseau and read and engage his critique of market society. Now, that is, to me, utterly fascinating. And I, I try and emphasize this to my students, which is, you know, we live in a world of echo chambers and epistemic bubbles where, you know, everybody is just um, on social media and at, or, 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 I don't know, network news and um, simply having all their priors validated. Smith here says, hey, guys. Hey, Scots, we all love this thing called commerce, but you know what? We owe it to ourselves to look at Rousseau and to see what his counterargument is. And in fact, Smith suggests, he might not have gotten all of it wrong. There's some actual stuff here that's really important, some of these claims about corruption. And so, um, uh, you know, you asked, was Smith responding to people in his context? I think undeniably so. One of the great scholarly projects of my life is to try and document who he's citing and who he's responding to where in his texts. Um, but I think here's one place. Rousseau is one of the great giants of the Enlightenment, um, and um, Smith is engaging him, and he's engaging him in a way that is really uh, goes beyond simple partisan ideology. He really does disagree with Rousseau on a variety of fronts, but he takes the critique seriously, and he's a generous enough interlocutor to say, when Rousseau gets certain things right, you know, give him credit. We need to take those ideas seriously. That, that was one of the most profound marks of Smith's um, um, real sophistication uh, and open-mindedness. I mean, we talk about you know, freedom of speech and enlightenment and all these sorts of things when we think about the 18th century. But he was never dogmatic. And he was one that was very eager to, um, uh, to use a colloquial phrase today, to engage the other side. Wow. I, I had no idea that that one question would open such a door, except maybe I did, <laughs> because that's the sort of thing that I like to think about. I know that that content could take us hours to get through. So that might have to be a different interview. But I have one last question for you. What is the most... Oh, nope, that's a different question. Um, what is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Oh, what a great question. Um, uh, there's a lot of things. It's, I, I, I think I'm a work in progress and I try to take the obligation to figure things out as deeply as possible at every moment. But I also, like Smith, I try and be open to rethinking positions that I've taken. Um, without going 
too deep into, you know, various, very personal commitments. I'll tell you one policy commitment that I've rethought that may be of interest to your listeners is that when I was young, when I was a college student and after college, I was a fervent supporter of legalization of drugs. Um, I grew up in the 80s. I saw the terrible human costs of the war on drugs, uh, and I thought that it perpetuated some horrific and terrible inequities uh, in American society. Um, I still think that's true. I also, um, in seeing the evolution of what's happened with legalization, um, I'm not sure at our current moment that we're prepared and ready to handle the responsibilities that come with legalization. And I worry that the human costs have been very high. So I've become uh, a much less uh, enthusiastic supporter of the legalization of drugs. I, I freely confess that I don't think that there's an easy answer. And it's much easier to say all the things that we're doing wrong. But um in a way that would probably horrify my younger self, I have come to be a greater supporter of um, much more careful regulation. Um, uh, and uh, um, and that might also horrify certain of your listeners as well. But um, there we go. Uh, I've learned a lot and I feel like I've seen a lot and the human costs are, are really great. And um, we're not doing what we need to do to be able to minimize those. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.